This is Sam Swartz and Sean Bull with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. In a speech last Friday, President Biden singled out the city of Madison for praise in its implementation of electric buses. The speech was to the United States Conference of Mayors, a bipartisan group of mayors from across the country, and in it, Biden made particular emphases on cities' efforts to go green, among them the city's purchase of almost four dozen electric buses. The buses are slated to begin arriving this summer, and the switch to bus rapid transit system is slated to begin in 2024. The city says using electric buses for BRT will reduce fuel and maintenance costs. President Biden also mentioned the health and environmental benefits of an electric fleet, and Mayor Rhodes Conway thanked him for the recognition. The Dane County Board has rejected an effort to turn the question of a new jail over to the voters this spring. Last Thursday, the board voted against posing a ballot question this April, which would ask voters whether to extend over $13 million more for the construction of a new jail, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The move comes after repeated deadlocks on the county board about the jail project. Advocates for the project cite the inhumane living conditions at the current jail, while detractors resist funding any sort of incarceration and have reservations about aspects of the proposed project. The referendum was a last-ditch effort to close a funding gap on the jail construction, which has funding up to $166 million secured through borrowing, but needs another $13 million in funding to make up for inflation and higher construction costs. Dane County Sheriff Calvin Barrett, along with other sheriffs, has called the conditions of the jail inhumane and borderline unconstitutional, with conditions that threaten the health and safety of jail residents. The Dane County Sheriff's Office reports that over the weekend, deputies intervened when a 35-year-old man attempted suicide. The city of Madison began service on a new ladder fire truck last Friday, matching another addition to the fire department fleet that was made last month, according to Channel 3000 News. The two new fire trucks will serve the west and south sides and are designed to be more fuel efficient and safer while driving than previous models. The Madison School District's Safety and Student Wellness Ad Hoc Committee met last Thursday to discuss responses to its survey regarding safety in the Madison schools. The survey, which was sent out to students, staff, and parents, received over 9,000 responses, and the concerns were far-ranging, according to the Capital Times. Some responses emphasized mental health support and initiatives against bullying, while others focused on nutrition or the lack of meaningful consequences for bad behavior. The committee is made up of several different stakeholders, including representatives from the teacher union and the school board, and is expected to present the school board with its recommendations in the spring. An important election coming up. That's right, the city of Madison has opened voting for what to name the new city snowplows. The election runs until February 3rd and comes after staff selected several names from over 1,200 submissions. The election is ranked choice and is run through the Wisconsin SaltWise website. So pick your five favorite names for each plow and get your ballots in. And now, on to today's top stories. Sunday marked the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, and Madison found itself in the center of nationwide rallies held in honor of the decision. The Women's March, along with the Madison Abortion and Reproductive Rights Coalition for Healthcare, aka March, hosted a rally at the Capitol to bring attention towards the upcoming state Supreme Court election. WORT reporter Christopher Cartwright has the story. A chilly 25 degrees didn't stop people from turning out for a march down State Street to memorialize the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Chanting, singing, and even band playing marked the walk to the Capitol, where organizers hoped to galvanize voters leading up to the April State Supreme Court election. Rachel O'Leary Carmona, the executive director of Women's March, spoke to me about the event. 
Yeah, today's march was themed bigger than Roe, and um, today what we're trying to do is get some demands forward that um, commemorate the the um, anniversary, the would-be anniversary of Roe, give some space for the solemnity of the moment of a first um, anniversary of Roe, where women do not have bodily autonomy, um, and also set the stage for the fight to come, uh, particularly in Wisconsin, um, in order to get uh, abortion rights and bodily autonomy back. Talking about them, that momentum. What is the the mood of the country? Would you say right now? I think the mood of the country, and particularly with women, is defiant. There's over 200 marches in the bitter cold of January through most of the country. A lot of folks are having really rough weather and not cold, not wind, not snow, or keeping us from it. Um, this capital is filled with over 2,000 people today, um, or we're seeing that all across the country as well. We think people are geared up, ready to fight, um, and ready to win. 2023-2024. Outside, rally-goer Lilith Kay held an assault rifle and watched for trouble. Inside, a podium stood ready on the South Gallery, facing north. Banners proclaiming Bigger Than Row hung from balconies, while attendees hoisted handmade signs on all three floors. Police stood around the edges, and volunteers wearing neon vests moved about to assist operations. Speeches from healthcare workers, organizers, and more filled the two-hour event. Pat Rays, the president of SEIU Healthcare Wisconsin, the state's largest healthcare union, spoke at the rally and talked afterwards about the most important priorities. We have to have legalized abortion so that women can continue to have the option to have children in the future. We have to have safe abortions for all the people of Wisconsin. And we have to make sure that we are voting and, and turning over this absurd law. What's the like the mood on the ground across the country? What do you think? I think overall people are very frustrated that this has come back to where we are. You know, today, January 22nd, is the 50th anniversary of the original Roe v. Wade win. And we've had people at this march and rally from multiple generations, some fighting for the first time, some fighting for the, for the second and third time. And we have to make sure that women have the choice to make decisions for themselves. I think across the country, people believe that, and we need to get out and vote to prove that. Jennifer Knox, the National Director for Organizing for Working Families Power, also spoke to the assembled crowd. She encouraged phone banking and other methods to get out the vote, especially in this off-year election. We do have to fear that millions and millions of dollars in Wisconsin will flow in, and the number one anecdote to the money that the right will spend is our word of mouth and our relationships. And so we need people, the most important thing they can do is talk to friends and family and move them to the polls. We win when we can move our family and our trusted friend networks. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Christopher Cartwright. While the official anniversary of Roe v. Wade took place yesterday, that didn't stop state lawmakers from acting today to try and protect abortion rights here in Wisconsin. 
Senate Minority Leader Melissa Agard of Madison officially introduced legislation today to include an advisory referendum on the state's abortion ban on the ballot this spring. The legislation, which would need to be approved by tomorrow to appear on the ballot, asks if Wisconsin's 19th century abortion ban should be repealed and if constitutional rights guaranteed under Roe v. Wade should be restored. Continuing our coverage of the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, WORT reporter Zoe Sullivan spoke with Tatiana Washington with the nonprofit abortion rights advocacy group NARAL Pro Choice America at yesterday's march. Yeah, my name is Tatiana Washington. I'm community organizer from Milwaukee. So you came from Milwaukee for this? Correct, yes. Awesome. And who did you come with? What group did you come with? Yeah, I just came with some friends. We're just here because we're passionate about this issue. Tell me about, okay, so you're passionate about the issue. What's bringing you out? And also, I you look like a person of color to me. What does that, like, how does that play into this? Definitely. Um, as we all know, this pre-roll ban is impacting people, especially people in Milwaukee, especially um, low-income people and people of color. So really just here to show that, you know, we're, we're going to keep fighting for reproductive freedom and that we're just not going to let this go away, you know. Eight, eight in ten Americans support the legal right to abortion, so this is something that is common sense, that we're the majority here. As an organizer, what are things you think that people should be doing to roll back Wisconsin's ban? Definitely. I think something that's really big is just disinformation that's been intentional by this very loud minority of folks that are anti-choice. You know, again, eight in ten people support that legal right to abortion. It's really just talking to friends and family about these things. And, like, we're not doctors. We shouldn't be making these decisions. People should have that autonomy to make that choice for themselves. Do you have an abortion story? Do you know someone or have you had an abortion yourself? And what, what was that situation like? Definitely. I mean, literally the next day after Roe v. Wade overturned, I had a friend who needed an abortion and it was just wild because the week before, she could go to local Planned Parenthood and get that, get that service and we had to figure out the resources to get her out of state, travel to Chicago to get that service. So it impacted people that I know and love and it happened very sudden. What was that like for her? You know, it was it was hard. One, dealing with the fact of making this choice to get an abortion, and also us being young people, Gen Z, that's just something that, like, our moms and our grandparents fought for, and now we're, we're here again. Can I talk, ask you more about, you know, as a person of color, how do you see this playing out in, you know, in communities of color around the state, particularly in Milwaukee? And... Like, what are the things that you think people should be aware of or thinking about? Definitely. I think something that's scary, a statistic just came out. Yeah. In states where there are um, abortion restrictions, the maternal mortality rates are higher. So when we think about black women and going to get that, where the rates are already high, it's a really scary fact, especially in a city or in cities like Milwaukee, where it's already really segregated. Um, so this is something that affects really everyone and it affects the community. And I think right now the pre-Roe ban does state doctors, but we've seen in Texas where people are actually getting criminalized and incarcerated for seeking health care. You're talking about the people who are pregnant? Correct, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, we're falling behind, but is there anything, anything else you want to add or anything that you think people should think about or do? Mm-hmm. I think it's really important that we make sure all of our folks go out to vote. We have a chance to get a Supreme Court that, you know, supports this issue and to get this pre-roll ban overturned. Last week, the Madison Common Council officially accepted over $1 million to help fund the administering of elections for the next two years. But that comes in the shadow of the Republican-led legislature, who could pass a constitutional amendment to ban the private use, the use of private funds to help run elections. WORT producer Nate Wegehaupt has more. The Common Council met for over five hours last week, where they approved the demolition of St. John's Church on East Washington, passed a change to zoning regulations along the city's bus routes, and accepted a $1.5 million grant to help run elections. 
The grant from the Chicago-based nonprofit, the Center for Tech and Civic Life, will come in two batches, with half a million dollars coming before the February 21st primary election and one million dollars coming next year. The money will be used to administer two elections in 2023, the spring primary and general elections, and four elections in 2024. It's not the first time Madison has received money from the Center for Tech and Civic Life. During the peaks of the pandemic in 2020, Madison received $1.3 million from the group to, in part, help purchase absentee ballot drop boxes for the 2020 presidential election. Back in October of 2020, Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway said that the money was needed to help the city run a safe and secure election. So we got a $1.3 million grant from the Center of Tech and Civic Life to assist us with putting on a healthy, safe and secure election during the COVID-19 pandemic. And that grant has gone to cover costs like the drop boxes that we're here today to celebrate and the additional costs for printing and mailing for absentee ballots. Last July, the state Supreme Court ruled that absentee ballot drop boxes cannot be used in elections. And now those drop boxes serve as public art pieces throughout Madison. That election grant in 2020 caused a flurry of lawsuits, all of which have been thrown out, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. But even without the expensive ballot boxes, running an election isn't cheap. Jim Verbick, deputy clerk for the city of Madison, says that when local elections come around every two years, those elections cost more than a state or federal election. That's because whoever is holding the election is responsible for the brunt of the cost. We budget for the year. For this year, we have about uh, 700000 budgeted for just election official wages. The election supplies is about 130000 Hardware supplies, occasionally we order like new express book machines, which are the ballot marking devices. I think we have about 12000 in the budget for that. And then just different supplies here and there. Verbick says that, although they haven't determined exactly where the money from the grant will go, it will be used to pay poll workers and to hire the appropriate number of staff to keep the spring election running as smoothly as possible. Even with multiple court cases determining that Madison's use of the money was fully legal, Republicans in the state legislature are looking to change that with a constitutional amendment to ban the use of private grants or donations in administering elections. Last year, both the state Senate and Assembly approved a constitutional amendment banning the use of private grants and donations for election administration for the first time. Now, in order for that amendment to go before voters in the April 4th general election, the legislature has until tomorrow to approve it a second time. Constitutional amendments need to be approved by two consecutive sessions of the state legislature before being placed on the ballot. If the amendment is approved by voters, then the amendment becomes enshrined in the state constitution. Notably, the governor cannot intervene with his veto powers in the constitutional amendment process. Meanwhile, GOP legislatures have twice attempted to simply pass a bill that bans private election grants, and both were vetoed by Governor Evers. As of today, the amendment has not yet been introduced, but even if legislators don't pass it in time for the April election, they still have until the end of the legislative session to get it on the ballot eventually. If that constitutional amendment passes, City Attorney Mike Haas says that, while it wouldn't affect money used to administer elections before then, it would cause issues going forward. Now, whether or not the city could continue to expend any funds that had already been applied for and accepted, um, I think that's a question we'll need to look more closely at. There may be an issue with continuing to spend funds, but I think we also will need to wait to uh, receive guidance either from the legislature or the Wisconsin Elections Commission to verify whether or not any funds that have been received and not been spent um, can be used for elections after a referendum like that passes. The amendment is one of several that could appear on the spring ballot. Another constitutional amendment, which would make it harder for individuals to get out of jail on bail, is headed before voters in the spring election this April. That amendment was approved by the state assembly last week. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. It's now 6.25 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news here on WORT. Weather in Madison is going to be fluctuating from this week into the next, with potential for some snow showers and high wind speeds midweek. WORT weather producer Caitlin Davis has more on what to expect.
UW-Madison students, grab your coats and gloves for the first day tomorrow. It's going to be a chilly one. Last week's fluctuation of weather and temperatures are going to continue into this week and the next. Temperatures are currently sitting at 27 degrees with 13 mile per hour winds coming from the west southwest with 66% cloud cover blocking the sun making it feel about 10 degrees cooler. Humidity is sitting at 76% and cloudy conditions will continue to rise into the evening. Overnight winds should calm down while the high pressure is holding in. Although the clouds cover the sun and make it feel colder, did you know that they could actually warm up the atmosphere? The clouds act as a blanket and they trap the heat which is radiated back towards the earth. These clouds that we will be seeing overnight will keep the temperatures warmer than we are used to feeling in the overnight hours. Temperatures only dropping down to 26 degrees, but we will still be feeling that 10 to 15 mile per hour wind coming from the west and increased humidity to 86%. Tomorrow's high for the first day back for UW students is looking to reach 31 degrees with variably cloudy conditions where we will be seeing more clouds than sun. Winds will be light and variable sitting at around 6 miles per hour and humidity will be sitting at 78% and you could expect the real field temperatures to be about five degrees colder than the actual temperatures. The sun will rise at 7.20 a.m. and it will be the last time our sun sets before 5 p.m. Wednesday's high is gonna reach the high 20s and a potential for some snow showers in the morning hours. Winds will pick up from Tuesday, looking to be in the 10 to 15 mile per hour range coming from the north. Wednesday's high is looking to reach the high 20s with a potential for some snow showers in the morning hours. Winds will pick up from Tuesday, looking to be in the 10 to 15 mile per hour range coming from the north. The cloudy conditions will continue into the evening hours with the low reaching the teens with continued wind speeds in the 5 to 10 mile per hour range and increased humidity into the evening. Thursday, the main system with the potential for snow is looking to diminish going into Thursday, but there could be some light lingering snow. Thursday's high is looking to reach the upper 20s with cloudy conditions throughout the day. Subtle winds are looking to blow from the northwest at 5 to 10 miles per hour with 80% humidity. The low again will be dropping down into the teens and wind speeds will increase between 10 to 15 miles per hour. Friday is looking to be our last warm day before the temperatures into the weekend and next week will only be reaching the teens. Friday's high will be 35 degrees with a chance of some scattered snow showers and winds between 10 and 20 miles per hour. The snow accumulation is looking to be less than an inch but expect much cooler real fill temps. Overnight will again drop into the teens with continued cloud coverage and high wind speeds. Have a great first day back tomorrow, Badgers, and stay warm. With your WORT weather report, I'm your producer, Caitlin Davis. With the 2023 spring primary election now less than one month away, we continue our candidate interview series by wrapping up the Alder race for District 10 on the city's far west side. Nino Amato is one of three candidates running for the seat as sat down with WORT producer Nate Weggehout last week to talk about what drove him to run for city council. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Who are you? Well, I'm one of the many Madisonians uh, whose grandparents immigrated from uh, Europe when they saw the rising fascism and communism creeping throughout Europe. And we grew up in South Madison in the Greenbush. I'm a product of the Madison Metropolitan School District. Uh, so are my parents and my daughters. And I'm also a product, a double alumni from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I did my undergrad and master's here. I also have about 30 years of leadership experience in both the public and private sector and has been very much involved for the last 25 years on climate mitigation, which our city, unfortunately, is woefully behind its goals of sustainability to achieve the zero neutral carbon emissions by 2050. And now, why are you running for election for the older seat in District 9? Yeah, the city's at a crossroads. And the crossroads are the fact that we have to address climate change, which is impacting all of us. And since there's a deadlock in Washington, there are things we can do. All politics are local. And as much as I like the mayor's efforts to have electric vehicles, 75% of that energy are fossil fuels. That's where she's putting her major emphasis in, and she's wrong. She also wants to remove over 4,500 trees in one of the largest, unique 26.4 acres greenway to fix a stormwater treatment problem that doesn't exist here. It exists at Menard's parking lot. So we don't know where the uh, mayor is getting her advice or our alder person who is supporting the mayor, who ignored over 600 signatures on a petition to save over 4,500 trees. That's what really prompted me and others to uh, decide to run. 
and many of my opponents, both of them, former supporters, are now supporting me in this election. Now, turning our eyes to the city of Madison now, what are some of the most pressing issues facing Madison that you would want to address? I know you've mentioned a couple before, but what would you really want to address here in Madison? Well, two really important issues, and it's something I saw a long time ago. I have been concerned over the last 25 years that Madison's becoming kind of a Naples of the Midwest, where only the wealthy can afford to live here. And those who work here, who are the essential workers, have to commute in and out. We have to address issues relative to affordable housing. And it's not just like Section 8. It is affordability for millennials and Generation X as well. I think the second biggest issue is that we've got to change the tax code and we have to be involved in utility rate cases and issues relative to alternative energy usage. And then the third is public safety. I grew up in Madison. Obviously, things have changed. 40 years ago, we were a population of about 168,000. Now we have close to 290,000. Public safety is important. And I believe in the CARES program where you address the issues relative to mental health-related issues. And I've been a strong advocate of mental health parity. But you also still have to hire neighborhood police officers, which is part of Obama's 21st century policing report. And my opponent, who's the incumbent, uh, voted against six new neighborhood police officers funded with a federal grant for three years by the federal grant apps program that would have provided interaction with students of all four high school and the neighborhoods. And she voted against it because he doesn't want any more funding going to police. And that seemed to be extremely unreasonable. I think the other issue on public safety is looking at other ways to manage the mental health related issues. And we really do need a mental health facility in Dane County because every time there's an issue where you have to bring someone to the facility up in the Fox Valley, that takes sometimes two police officers, additional personnel, takes them off the street. So we've got to look at things more strategically and um, at the same time try to balance the needs of each neighborhood. Uh, And let me add one other issue, too. Back when I was a graduate student, people used to joke that Madison couldn't put two bricks together because we were so inclusive at getting residents' opinions. Uh, We've gone to the opposite end. There seems to be an arrogance on the part of some of our agencies who damn the torpedoes. We don't care what the neighborhood says. We don't care about trees. We're here. You're here and gone and therefore we're going to do what we think is right. Now, that is bureaucratic arrogance. We've seen it here with the engineering department on their poor decisions for stormwater management. We've seen it on removing trees that, quite frankly, are very vital to the sequestration of carbon that absorbs carbon and turns it into oxygen. So to me, there has to be a greater cooperation among council members to hold the bureaucracy accountable. And now I want to dive into a couple specific issues here in Madison, starting off with transit. Now, bus rapid transit is set to take off uh, pretty soon here in Madison. How do you feel about the bus rapid transit? Well, conceptually, it's essential, okay? But I think the mayor is more concerned about building her resume so she can get a job in Washington. What is currently being proposed will destroy State Street. Secondly, it will have huge disruptions from the standpoint that the people who need mass transit the most, those who have to take transportation to get to work, have to take public transportation in order to grocery shop or anything else, are the ones that are going to take the blunt end of this thing. They're going to have to have longer walks to get there. I would put a hold on it immediately. I know a lot of council members who are running on this issue alone who are saying, let's halt the train. The mayor's off on a tangent. Somebody should ask her, are you going to finish four years if you're elected? Or is this nothing more than a ploy to go work out for the U.S. Department of Transportation? It is the most idiotic detailed thing where the people that need mass transportation the most are being harmed by the mayor's rush to judgment. And I'm disappointed in the city council and my alder person who should know better relative to who's really in need. And I'm glad you raised this issue. And now another issue that you have mentioned before is is the housing. What sort of key initiatives would you like to see to bring more affordable housing here to Madison? What I would encourage 
whether the mayor would go along with it or not, or if there's a new mayor, I know that both of them would. And that is we need to set up a emergency task force with retired developers, people from the university. We have one of the best institutions worldwide at the end of State Street with expertise that far exceeds anything we have in the city of Madison. People who are actually using the needs for affordable housing create a a task force and come back within 90 days with specific recommendations of creating public-private investment partnerships. Okay, That's one way to do it. Another way to do it is to take advantage of some of the federal programs called minority-owned enterprise investment companies. You can build whatever you want in South Madison, which is great, but brick and mortar does not create jobs. What is needed is an investment ability where people can come in and invest in new business startups, and you can do the same concept for housing. We don't have to contract out with every, quote, profit-making businesses that wants to get into affordable housing. And let me just say this. Back when I was senior executive at Wisconsin Power & Light, we created a affordable housing investment company that basically provided tax credits, and we worked in partnership with both the city as well as with private businesses. You can take that same public-private business model, apply it for affordable housing and an investment, and that's how you do it. We're taking a conventional approach time and time again, and I don't believe the incumbent mayor understands it. And let me say this. I want to thank one of the council members that talked about the transit program and the neighborhoods where now they want to increase density, which is important, but it should be owner-owned density. The moment you take that condition away, you're going to have business speculators from Chicago and the Twin Cities coming in here and taking advantage of a loophole that the mayor doesn't even see. So, you know, the solutions are there, but you just can't rush to judgment, and we have to do a better job of our due diligence and look at more creative ways to accomplish the things that the city urgently needs. We are at a crossroads, and either we address things now in the next two to four years, or we're going to see uncontrollable growth, and we're going to see a lot of damage done to the people who need our help the most. I've been talking with Nino Amato, one of the three candidates running in next month's primary for the Alder seat in District 9. That primary election takes place on February 21st, with the 2023 spring general election taking place on April 4th. Nino, thank you so much for talking with me today. Well, thank you. Yesterday marked the anniversary of a factory walkout by one of the 60s most militant rank-and-file organizations. The workers had just formed the Eldon Revolutionary Union Movement, or ELRUM, to oppose the speed-up and racist treatment on the job. The year was 1969, and feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. Yesterday, January 22nd, is the anniversary of the day a group of African-American workers at the Eldon Chrysler plant in Detroit walked off the job and marched on their union, the United Auto Workers, UAW, with a list of grievances. The next day, they called a wildcat strike, keeping out two-thirds of the workforce. The year was 1969. They had formed the Eldon Revolutionary Union Movement, ELRUM, to fight both management and the union bureaucrats that were complicit in the deteriorating working conditions at the factory. The company fired and disciplined dozens of militants. The movement eventually mounted several wildcat strikes and other protests, ran and supported reform candidates for local union offices, and worked with some whites as well. They urged white workers to form their own radical caucus in the union. Elrum was part of the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement, DRUM, a radical organization that sought to organize African-American workers in Detroit. The main grievance of workers, black and white, was the speed-up. For example, in 1946, some 550,000 auto workers had produced over 3 million cars. But in 1970, some 750,000 workers produced a little over 8 million vehicles. Management claimed this came as the result of improved management techniques and new machinery. The workers, however, knew this higher productivity came from being forced to work harder and faster under 
under increasingly unsafe and unhealthy conditions. The companies call their method automation. Black workers in Detroit called it N-word mation. This was clearly the case at the Chrysler Corporation's Eldon Avenue gear and axle plant. Eldon employed over 4,000 workers, 70% of them African American. Eldon was the sole source of rear axles. They machined and assembled the parts into completed axles. Black workers were commonly given the hardest and dirtiest jobs in the factory and subjected to harassment and racist treatment by foremen. These poor conditions reached such proportions that by 1970, harassment, industrial illnesses, injuries, and deaths on the job pushed Eldon workers to the breaking point. On July 15, 1970, James Johnson, a fired African-American worker, entered the Eldon plant with an M1 carbine hidden in the pant leg of his overalls. The factory had been the scene of a series of bitter wildcat strikes for most of the year, and during a two-week period, one woman and one male worker had been killed in on-the-job accidents. The noise, oil pools, defective machinery that characterized the plant were all around Johnson when he spotted one of the foremen who had been involved in his dismissal earlier that day. He took out his carbine, and before he was finished shooting, one black foreman, one white foreman, and one white job setter lay dead on the factory floor. Johnson had been fired after refusing to participate in a work speed-up. Johnson was not a radical. He wasn't a part of Elrum, the Wildcat Group, a lefty newsletter, or the Safety Committee, a group that included some radical whites. He didn't even go to union meetings. But Ken Cockrell, a leader of the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, the umbrella group for the various drums and community activists, became his attorney. Eldon workers learned Johnson had been in other disputes involving lost pay and lost vacation time, where he had been treated unfairly. Elrum produced a leaflet blaming the deaths on working conditions in Chrysler and on Johnson's lifetime experience of racism. Elrum argued that Chrysler had pulled the trigger and the United Automobile Workers, UAW, was an accessory after the fact. Cockrell said, We'll have to put Chrysler on trial for the damages to this man caused by his working conditions. The Johnson jury was taken to Eldon, the scene of the crime, to observe for themselves the conditions which even the conservative judge called abominable. The UAW safety director termed the conditions inexcusably dangerous and evidence of a complete neglect of stated maintenance procedures. The jury agreed and concluded that James Johnson was not responsible for his actions. That August, during local contract negotiations, Chrysler admitted to 167 separate safety violations at Eldon, yet a year and a half later, in January of 1971, the Michigan Department of Labor found hundreds of violations of the Michigan Safety Codes still uncorrected. In a separate case brought against Chrysler by Johnson, he was awarded workman's compensation of $75 a week from the beginning of his breakdown. In 1971, the league fell apart over internal differences, but they had helped inspire thousands to fight back against the boss and the union bureaucrats, winning significant, if mostly temporary, victories. And that is our story for today. For the past is the past, I'm Harry Richardson. It's Monday, which means that Forward Lookout host Brenda Conkle sits down with Dylan Brogan to break down all the meetings to come in Madison and Dane County. This week, the City Plan Commission continues driving forward, and the city seeks to replace their sludge thickeners. Oh, it's Monday, and that means we're talking to Brenda Conkle from FordLookout.com. So we'll start with Dane County like we typically do. Brenda, nice to talk to you again. Yeah, it's been a minute. <laughs> yes, it has. But uh, the local government meetings carry on. And the and the first one we're talking about is Personnel and Finance Committee. Uh, that's Dane County. It's a hybrid meeting. What are they talking about? They're looking at their annual strategic initiative grant. They're also looking at some affordable housing projects. And they are extending the quarantine hotel for folks who are experiencing homelessness. Um, they do have quite a few other things in their agenda. And I'm guessing if you work for the county, you might be interested in their um, changing the civil service ordinance. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Something to look into. Okay. Uh, well, let's move on to Tuesday. We have the Public Protection and Judiciary Committee. They probably won't be talking about all the developments at the jail. That's been put off for a few months, but they will be talking about uh, more grants for various oh. policing projects that 
you would think people would oppose, but I it, sometimes we they just keep passing. Um, they have a grant for the narcotics narcotics task force grant. They also have an anti heroin and anti methamphetamine task force grant, and then they are also going to be looking at funding for the ongoing pretrial evaluation work. We'll leave that for others to talk about uh, this <laughs> right. week, but uh, also Tuesday, we have the Public Works and Transportation Committee. Uh, again, we're talking about Dane County. That's at 5.30 on Tuesday. So they had quite a few routine items, um, you know, sharing agreements about various highways and pavement markings. They have a bunch of leases um, and some contracts that they're going to be approving. Um, I would say maybe the most interesting things that they may be looking at are the landfill. There looks like they're going to be increasing some funding there for the landfill. Yes, and, and well, and the Bush vacuum pump system and parts. Who the no? <laughs> I want to know what that's all about. But yes, the landfill is probably the most important item. Right. <laughs> Okay, Dane County, what else you got this week? How about Parks Commission? Uh, they'll be meeting, that's at uh, on Thursday at 5.30, and that one is a hybrid meeting. And looks like they'll be authorizing a purchase for more park space. Yeah, it seems like almost every every week yeah. there's purchasing more land somewhere. Um, this one is for the McCarthy Youth and Conservation County Park. Um, and so they're, they're looking at purchasing some land there. Um, they're also looking at some funds for accessibility improvements for the Jenny and Kyle Preserve. And then they are also looking at actually harvesting timber at Anderson Farm. All right, let's move on to the city of Madison, where we have a bunch of meetings on Monday. So I encourage everyone to check forwardlookout.com about what happened. But uh, what, what's happening and is probably still in progress is the plan commission. And that's a virtual meeting that started at 530 today. So but man, they just a ton of projects that are being considered. Yeah, nothing slowed down during the pandemic when it comes to uh, building new buildings, it seems. Yeah, completely full agenda again. Um, they have a project at 6604 Odana Drive or Odana Road. They also have a couple of them on Teresa Terrace. Looks like some duplexes that they're going to be rehabbing their project out at 4205 Portage Road, 4522 East Washington. And then they have the Ratman Neighborhood Development Plan. I think that one's on the east side, but I can't remember. And then they have another project out at 1801 to 1841 Northport Drive. And then a bunch of smaller projects that um, are conditional uses in some of the neighborhoods you might want to take a look. And let's see, we have uh, the Water Utility Board at 4.30 on Tuesday. Sometimes that's an important meeting. Sometimes a little gets under the radar. Anything we should look out for with the Water Utility Board? Um, Well, they're talking about an agreement with the University of Wisconsin-Madison for Well 19, allowing them to discharge, uh, sewer discharge. Mm. Um, So that's... That's Where into what? I'm I am I am curious about that one. Um, and then they have a bunch of reports. Um, and then they have one sole source contract um, with Badger Meter and Iron. So um, not too horribly exciting, but it is interesting what's going on there at Well 19. Yes, of course. Well 19. Okay. All right. On Wednesday, we at 5 p.m. we have a virtual meeting of the Transportation Commission, and um, they they have some a few interesting items this week, right? Yeah, they'll, um, they have a few routine items. They are looking at a project at 102 South Sprecher Road. Um, but if you've tried to take a cab anywhere recently, you may be interested in this. They're talking about a grant program to support accessible taxi cabs in Madison. Yeah. Um, and then they are spending, I think, a, a big chunk of the time of their meeting on the Safe Streets uh, Madison uh, program. Okay. All right. Well, you know, we're going to just do it because it's that kind of week. At 8 a.m. Thursday, a virtual meeting of the Madison Metropolitan Sewerage <laughs> District Commission. And hey, if you didn't think this is important, it is. This is, yeah, you know why. <laughs> yeah, they they actually have almost everything on their agenda is on their consent agenda. So it seems like there are things oh. that are not controversial, um, but there are a bunch of um, routine items and projects that they're sort of moving forward, and then they'll be getting a bunch of reports from the chief engineer and the director. Mm, yes. All right. Well, I want to hear about the sludge thickeners, number one and number two. <laughs> right. Exactly. What are they using to thicken the sludge? And this is a capital project. Oh, I don't know if we want to know. I, I think, <laughs> maybe maybe I think somebody it, should be paying attention. 
I think I need to go to every sewerage district thing because honestly, it's an amendment to the capital budget and they need, apparently it has something to do with sludge thickeners, number one and number two, and um, they need replacements. If you show up, they'll be very surprised. They're not used to having guests at that committee. Yes. Went there once for a PFAS related item and they are not used to having guests. Well, I hope they didn't treat you too crappy. Oh, no. They, ha, ha, ha. You're funny. Right. <laughs> um, no, they were very kind. <laughs> 445. And on uh, this is still Thursday, 445 on Thursday, we have the Joint Campus Area Committee. And and that's they discuss all the what's going on on campus in terms of projects and quite a few there as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, they have two main items on their agenda, the material science, partial deconstruction and screening, as well as the engineering drive utility projects. And then there's a long list of projects at the UW-Madison, as well as UW Health and then City of Madison projects. So there's probably about uh, 30 projects listed there. And that's where the various uh, neighborhood associations and interest groups in that area are able to hear the latest updates on those projects. And as usual, if you need and you want to learn more about what's happening in local government this week, you can head on over to forwardlookout.com. And Brenda has all all the meetings and agendas posted in a nice, convenient spot. It's really helpful. So, Brenda, we really appreciate you taking some time to talk us through it all today. Thank you. No problem, Dylan. Have a good day. Today, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new movies on the small screen. First is a fun family animated movie with cool special effects, Strange World. The other movie is for adults with an offbeat sense of humor. The satirical Amsterdam is a tale of unlikely friendships, murder, and a fascist conspiracy to take over America. is in grave danger. I want you to come with me on an expedition. I'm not my father. He was the explorer. I know you were just a kid when he went missing, but now you're all we got. That was a clip from the trailer for the new animated film, Strange World, co-directed by Don Hall and Quijin. Quijin also wrote the script. This was a fun, family-friendly movie that is striking visually with its imaginative CGI effects. It delivers a heartfelt, if predictable, story. The film played briefly in theaters and is now on Disney+. It arrived with little advanced publicity. Our opening scene sets up the story's core conflict between father and son. Jaeger Clade, voiced by the scene-stealing Dennis Quaid, is the great explorer wanting to see literally what's on the other side of the mountain. His more circumspect son, Searcher Clade, Jake Gyllenhaal, is his reluctant companion. Searcher finds a wondrous plant after he has it out with his father. His father marches off alone. Fast forward 25 years and Searcher has helped develop Pando, his plant, into a power source for his community filled with all kinds of eclectic machines, including some that fly. He is married to Meridian, Gabriel Union, and they have a teen son, Ethan, who has a crush on one of his male friends. Searcher has become a farmer raising Pando. Suddenly their quiet life is disrupted and Searcher is drafted into the mission to save their way of life by Mayor Callisto Maul. Callisto, Lucy Liu, was on that fateful last mission led by Jaeger. Ethan, unlike his father, wants to go on the dangerous journey. The farm is so small and the world is so big, he says. Searcher forbids him to go. Meridian becomes the pilot and Ethan sneaks aboard. Soon their airship has gone through a mysterious cavern to a nether region never explored before, or so they think. Searcher, exploring the new terrain, bumps into danger and is rescued by, you guessed it, his long-missing dad. Jaeger joins them as they travel to unravel the mystery. Along the way, he meets his grandson and gets reacquainted with his son. Searcher and his dad have more in common than they think, notes the observant Ethan. All in all, a fun animated action movie for the whole family with an inclusive cast and strong women characters. Searcher and Meridian are a biracial couple of a gay son. They also have a three-legged dog. This is just a mildly entertaining movie. Some reviewers are wondering if Disney has purposely not publicized it to show inclusive movies are not money makers. Now for an adult adventure with an unlikely trio. You don't get here without things starting a long time ago. 
so two soldiers and the nurse found ourselves in Amsterdam. That was a clip from the trailer for Amsterdam, an amusing satire adventure filmed by director David O. Russell. The movie is set mostly in the 30s, New York, with an important flashback to World War I to show what forged an unusual bond among three unlikely people. The story is told from the point of view of Bert Berenson, Christian Bale. Bert is a doctor whose spouse, an amusing upper-crust Andrea Riseborough, and his in-laws urge him to enlist in World War I. He thinks he's being set up. Soon he finds himself in Europe, the only available officer to take charge of an African-American squad. Its real leader is Harold Woodsman, John David Washington. Harold promises to watch Bert's back if he supports his squad. Bert agrees, but both are wounded and end up hospitalized under the unusual ministrations of an American nurse, Valerie Margot Robbie. She has an unusual hobby, making art out of shrapnel pulled from the wounded. Bert has been seriously injured. He lost an eye and is stuck in a painful back brace. Harold has been seriously injured too, but it's love at first sight for Harold and Valerie. Soon the three are off to Amsterdam for recovery and adventure. Once there, Valerie introduces Bert and Harold to two spies, Mike Myers and Michael Shannon. This becomes important later. Alas, the Amsterdam ideal can't last, and the married Bert has to return to New York. Harold reluctantly decides to return to support Bert. A few days later, Valerie disappears. Fast forward 12 years and Bert is a doctor, feel good, to fellow vets, but has been taking too much of his own medicine. Meanwhile, Harold has attained his dream, becoming a lawyer. Harold has taken on the case of a young woman, Taylor Swift. She has convinced her father, the officer who brought Bert and Harold together, did not die of natural causes. So Harold gets Bert to perform an autopsy and confirms her fears. But she is thrown in front of a speeding car, and Harold and Bert are blamed. They go on the lamp to clear their name and run into an old friend. There's also a good ending that deals with a real fascist conspiracy, with a nice part for Robert De Niro. All in all, a fun, well-filmed, far-fetched, entertaining story. It's available on several streaming services. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Your reporters were Christopher Cartwright and Zoe Sullivan. Your weather producer was Caitlin Davis. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle and Dylan Brogan, and Nicholas Leet for technical production. Victor Calzoni engineered the show tonight. Nate Weggehout produced this newscast. And Shally Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz. And I'm your host, Sean Bull. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next, the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night. Good night.